I don't think there are actually that many people who think putting their phone on low power using straws is the difference. And I, I agree with you. There's too much of that sort of virtue signaling. I agree about that. But I think that's a relatively modest part of this problem. I think a much bigger part of the problem is the fact that we have very large polluters who make an enormous amount of money from the status quo and have worked very hard and very successfully to keep the status quo. And if you told me that I could either fix the virtue signaling of the straws or fix the notion that these polluting companies insist on the status quo in our political system, I'd fix the second. Hi, you're listening to season two of Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. I'm your host, Duncan Minch. In this podcast, I interview scholars, writers, and intellectuals about the American political tradition and the state of intellectual life in the United States. The point of the podcast is to have an intellectual exchange of views on political, civic, and social issues in American life. Many of the guests on the podcast are part of the school's speaker series, which invites liberal progressives and conservative voices that we feel are important for the advancement of civil and liberal education today. On today's podcast, I'll be speaking with David Leonhardt, a man who needs little introduction. He is a columnist for The New York Times and the 2011 Pulitzer Prize winner for commentary. In our conversation, we discuss Bernie versus Warren and what people miss about the differences between the two. We also discuss our differing views on how to deal with climate change. For instance, can technology really solve the problem or do we need to drastically, as I argue, reorganize our entire way of life? This interview was recorded in early October. Some of it seems out of date, especially when we discuss Warren's frontrunner status as the preferred candidate of the mainstream media. David Leonhardt, hope you enjoy it. I'm here with David Leonhardt. Is that how you pronounce that? Slightly different, but anything's fine. Leonhardt. I'm very particular about names because everyone mispronounces mine. What's your last name? Mensch. Mensch. And they say Mensk. Obviously, you're very familiar, if not an expert, with math and numbers. And this ought to be somewhat interesting because while I can do numbers and I'm interested in them, I'm very much not a numbers person. This is not how my brain works. I think we might have an interesting dynamic here. I kind of tend to trust my intuition as an intellectual and cultural historian. So I'm going to push these boundaries a little bit. But I want to start with the math and numbers that you find most intriguing within the last year as related to politics. Anything coming up? Yeah, I would say within the last year, I'll take your question literally, I would say that what to me is interesting was the swing back to Democrats in the 2008 midterms. There has been a little bit of a fight about whether there are swing voters. And there are, I think, a significant number of progressives and Democrats who've essentially argued basically that there aren't and that the people who flipped from the Democrats to Trump are gone to the Democratic Party. Gone as in like they've permanently switched. Right. Just to clarify, are we talking about the Obama voters that Hillary lost? Yeah, basically. The classic voter we're talking about here is white working class voter in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania. The Rust Belt. Yeah. But you also find these voters in other places. So in the panhandle of Florida, the true election experts, of whom I am not one, 
knew that Hillary was in trouble when these counties in the Florida panhandle that had their returns come in quite early on election night came in. These were not places Obama won, but he didn't lose them as badly as Hillary did. So it was just an early indicator, a very early one. It was an early indicator. Yeah. And so there's been this fight. Was Trump's victory about turnout or persuasion? Often when you have these fights, the answer is, well, of course, it was both. I'm on the, of course, it was both side of the argument. Turnout did matter in 2016. But I think the 2018 midterm elections showed that there are swing voters in American politics. And there are multiple kinds of swing voters. But there were swing voters who went from Obama in 12 to Trump in 16, back to the Democrats in 18. And these voters are up for grabs. And the numbers around that flip were some of the most interesting numbers. And so I'll make this last point briefly. But there was a percentage point swing uh, among one cut of white working class voters of five percentage points from 16 to 18. And some people may look at that and say five percentage points, that's not that much. Trump still won. The Republicans still won them easily. Well, five percentage points is a lot. Oh, it can be all, is, the difference. all it can takes is one, right? Yeah. I mean, in order for things to swing. So that's been, to me, the most interesting number in the last year. It strikes me, and just so you know, a little bit of background about me, I started making bets 14 months prior to the election that Trump would win. Not because I support Trump, but just because as a well, intellectual Well, I hope you made a lot of money. I actually did. Good. Some people still owe me money. <laughs> <laughs> so, but if, if they still owe you, you have not made it. Yeah, I haven't made as much as I should have. So, so I saw this one coming a great deal in advance. Why? In part because I didn't trust any of the numbers. Because I knew there's just no way Hillary Clinton will ever be president in the United States. This is just not a character that would ever win over the types of people that exist in the Rust Belt or in the middle of the country. And it has less to do with politics and it has more to do with just culture, right? And I think people in the New York literati scene, and I used to take part in this. I did my journalism degree at NYU and wrote newscasts for Air America Radio. And I worked around these people. They just have no clue about how the culture of the Midwest actually actually works. And I still see it in the media scene right now. I see them completely oblivious to who might actually be successful. This is my point. Of I view. don't disagree with parts of that. But the only thing I would say is that in 2016, both Republicans and Democrats, most of them thought Trump was going to lose. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah, in 2012, sure. you had the funny situation in which the Obama people thought they were going to win. The Romney people thought they were going to win. Right. And the Obama people were just right. And the Romney people were reading the wrong polls. But in 2016, you had Democrats, Republicans, New York literati, middle of the country people, the overwhelming expectation was that Trump was going to lose. And so while I share some of the critique of the fact that those of us from the Northeast tend to be provincial, everyone's provincial, I think the Trump thing is a little more complicated than that because it was also Trump's own campaign that expected him to lose. Obviously, there's truth to that. I mean, it was the most unexpected victory, possibly, if not surely, in American history. Certainly in our lifetime. Certainly in our lifetime. Certainly in modern contemporary polls. No doubt. But I still think there's a great deal of insularity, especially in regards to misunderstandings, key misunderstandings of middle American culture. And you can see it, I think, in somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who has now become ascendant almost. It's almost an agreed upon situation where she's going to be the next. To read the polls and the trends, she's the front runner. Absolutely. Which I would not have said three weeks ago. Whereas from my perspective, and 
again, I welcome pushback on all levels, right? Is that I would say she is not a good candidate for the Midwest Why and do you for think the she's and not? the Middle American. It's a cultural thing. A Harvard professor, yes, she's from Oklahoma, but she's been at Harvard and speaks like a Harvard professor. And she may not be quite as bad in terms of her inability to communicate with the average person to say someone like Al Gore or John Kerry, but it's still a Harvard professor yep. who has a white paper for everything. Whereas I think you said yourself, I heard this on a podcast you did earlier this year, that journalists may respond to white papers, but undecided voters, this is not how they necessarily make their decisions. I would say two things about Warren. I also think there is some question about how strong she would be as a general election candidate. There's still a long way to go. Oh, sure. Whereas She's now narrowly issues, ahead sure. of Biden, but no voting has taken place. And if something, I mean, if I was given surprises before, and if Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg wins Iowa, it will throw everything up in the air. That seems incredibly unlikely. It does, yeah, yeah. but eight years ago, it seemed incredibly unlikely that Barack Obama would beat Hillary Clinton. And it's worth going back to the October 2007 political press and reading that to give us all a little humility. October was a month when Obama supporters were essentially not so much inside the campaign, but the supporters around the campaign were in something approaching a panic mode. And there was a front page story in the Times about how badly his campaign was going. But what kind of rates was he running? I mean, I don't think he had any kind of approval ratings or polling numbers that were as low as somebody like Buttigieg or Harris, though. Or am I wrong? No, but it was a two-way race. So while his percentage was quite high. He was way behind Hiller. Three-way race. Edwards was in it as well. He was way behind Hiller. So, and he made this kind of great charge in the last months of 07. And then no one expected him to win Iowa. Sort of turbocharges came in. In any event, I'm of two minds about Warren. I share some of the view that she is not an ideal candidate to win over white working class voters. And I would guess some of your listeners would hear that and say, why does he keep talking about white working class voters? Are they more important than everyone else? No, they're not. They're not more American. They're not more real. But the way our political system has worked out, white working class voters have outsized political power because they are concentrated in states that have lower populations and states that happen to be swing states. So I'm not saying white working class voters are more important than Latino working class voters, but white working class voters have, our system gives them more power. Well, I think it's just by accident. The higher percentages of white working class voters exist in the Rust Belt primarily, or Colorado, yes. or Missouri, which tend to be up for grabs, or yes. Florida, perhaps. Our, our system has ended up being a huge affirmative action program for white people, basically our political system. It has in that sense, but here's where I would push back on you, and this is something where having been in the New York media scene, there really is no voice for the middle American viewpoint, whether they're white or otherwise. And I say this from experience because I, you know, I went to NYU and I worked in the New York media scene for a while. If you try to put forward a narrative about middle America, that's anything other than one that really confirms that of the quote, and I'm using this in quotes, liberal elites, because it's not a great term by any means. You'll either be ignored, or you'll mostly be ignored. They're just not interested. Or you'll be immediately painted as somebody that they don't want to listen to anymore. Yeah, I, I would respect disagree with that. Okay. I think there wasn't enough coverage of those parts of the country in the lead up to 2016. But I think since 2016, there's been a lot of journalism that's been done from those parts of the country. In fact, there's this whole meme on the left, which I disagree with, that basically says, why has journalism, these New York and Washington based places, why have they gone and done dozens and dozens of fawning stories from diners in small town America? I disagree with that critique. But I think the question of is, yeah, there I'm aware of it. and then I guess the other thing I'd say is there are talk radio is pretty popular in this country. Fox News is pretty popular. So while there are certainly 
liberal New York-based publications and metropolitan-based publications, we have a big, diverse media scene. So let me clarify. So in terms of like the actual intellectual media scene, things like The Atlantic, The New York Times Magazine, things of this nature. Why do we separate those out? Meaning to me, the media scene also includes Fox News and talk radio. Oh, no, it it absolutely does. That must be taken into account. But if you're trying to actually do intellectual journalism that comes from the perspective of in any way defensive or trying to give a perspective of middle America, because there's lots of aspects of middle America that people on the coast would just never imagine. And the political culture is dramatically different than people would imagine. For instance, Bernie is your best candidate in middle America. And it's not even really hard to prove. I mean, all you have to do is just look at the fact that in the Mountain West, where we are, Bernie got like 85% in most of the Democratic primaries. I mean, my, my sister worked for the Democratic Party in Utah. She helped volunteer to count primary boxes. And she would go through entire boxes, no Hillary votes. I think that may also be about the point you made earlier, which is Hillary Clinton was a pretty unpopular politician. And I actually think that Bernie's history of socialism is a real liability in a general election. And I don't think we're ever going to test that because I don't think Bernie's going to yeah, be the nominee. Get there. But I'm I'm a little less bullish on Bernie as a general election candidate. But actually, it brings us back to the Warren question you asked that I didn't answer. So I'm of two minds. I agree with you. There are reasons to think that she may not be the Democrats' strongest general election candidate. And the reasons are basically twofold. There are some a whole bunch of polls that suggest that Biden versus Trump on a head-to-head matchup, Biden does better than Warren does. And then the thing that I actually put more weight on is that when Warren has run in Massachusetts, actual voting rather than polls, she has often run behind the other Democrats on the ticket in these working class white parts of Massachusetts. So this is the North Shore near right. New Hampshire. She ran behind Obama in 12, and she ran behind the attorney general, Massachusetts attorney general in 18. Not massively behind, but clearly behind. So those are the reasons to think that she might be a somewhat weaker general election candidate. Again, though, and I know I'm a little bit of a broken record on this, I think it's important to be humble about how much we actually know here, because Ronald Reagan was considered an unelectable general election candidate. He was seen as too radical and too much of a lightweight. Barack Obama was seen by many people as an unelectable candidate because his name was Barack Hussein Obama, and all he'd ever done has been a senator for two years. And so if you look back, some people consider JFK unelectable, right? Young and Catholic. Catholic, yeah. And so when you look back over American history, some of the people who were considered unelectable for various reasons, actually through force of personality or a circumstance, turned out to be quite electable. And Josh Barrow, who is now... But do you think that she has that force of personality? Because I think you just, that word, or that phrase that you use is essential. Obama certainly had it. Reagan certainly had it. Trump had it. Yeah, he did. I think that there are ways in which she could. I think that if you look at some of her rallies, if you look, how did Elizabeth Warren come to prominence? She came to prominence because many people in the Obama administration had trouble talking about the financial crisis in ways that connected with Americans emotionally. They sounded technocratic. They sounded distant. And Warren went on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and subsequently many other places. And she sounded raw and real. And she talked about people struggling in their lives and being treated unfairly 
And Josh Barrow, the New York Magazine writer, had this series of tweets this week in which he said, I absolutely can see how Elizabeth Warren ends up being a relatively weak general election candidate for Democrats because of the egghead stuff. And I absolutely see how Elizabeth Warren ends up being a much stronger general election candidate than people now think because of her personal story, her Oklahoma roots, and her passion about middle-class and working-class people getting screwed over. And Josh ended this by saying, I know people are now divided into two camps on this question, and I think both camps are way too confident about being right. And I'm with Josh because I see both arguments and she's certainly I a better candidate which than one is Hillary. Right. She's certainly an infinitely better candidate than Hillary was and an infinitely better communicator in terms of her likelihood to communicate and reach people who had never heard of her before. I think there is a very good chance she would have been the nominee if she had run in 2016. Although I think that as symbolized by Obama's decision to sort of semi-anoint Hillary, I think we look back now on all of Hillary's weaknesses as a candidate. Hillary also had enormous strengths as a policy thinker, her kind of incredible energy and resilience. I think that it's more likely that no matter who ran, Biden, Warren, Hillary would have been the nominee. And partially just because of all the institutional advantages that she has. Yeah, and not just the institutional advantage, but I do think there was a sense, obviously not, well, I shouldn't say obviously not from the country. She won the popular vote and not by a little, right? I mean, George W. Bush and Al Gore basically tied in the popular vote. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump didn't tie. She won by several million votes. But I think there was a real sense among Democratic primary voters that it was her turn. Yeah, and which is never a great it's Never great. Republicans have made this mistake as well. It's just Bob never. Dole. Bob Dole, Mitt Romney. I mean, it's the old Republican thing. Finish second the time before and you get the nomination the next time. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. I'm Duncan Minch. And today I'm speaking with David Leonhardt, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for The New York Times. I'm Paul Carice, director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. We launched Keeping It Civil because we believe in the power of intellectual dialogue to both renew our civic life and remind us of the value of liberal arts learning. At the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, we are restoring space for civil discourse across divergent views on human, civic, and academic issues. Our majors and minors undertake a liberal education to discuss moral and political thought, economic thought, and America's ideals and constitutional principles. They study important historical moments and leaders, and they experience leadership challenges through special seminars, internships, and programs. This broad foundation prepares them to be ethical, adaptive leaders in their chosen professions or civil society or in public affairs. We hope you'll learn more about the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University by visiting secl.asu.edu. The School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University, a new class of leaders. Welcome back. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. Let's continue our conversation with the New York Times' David Leonhardt. I want to pivot, though, to some other topics. Good. Climate change. Yes. So you've called it the biggest national problem that we have. And certainly many people would agree. And it's obvious to we don't need to necessarily go over the details of why we would think that. But I want to maybe challenge you a little bit on the phrase of national problem, because, of course, it's a global problem. But I think one of the biggest problems with the contemporary environmentalist viewpoint in terms of how they market this to people is as a national problem. I mean, that's not maybe the right way to look at it. It's a global problem. If China's not on board and everybody else isn't on board, there's absolutely no way 
this is going to be solved. Yeah, I agree. It is a global problem. I think I've written that. But China is partly on board now. China has made substantial changes to their policy on climate. Many other countries are on board. It wasn't a different country that pulled out of the climate Paris Accord. It was the United States. And so I think there's been a confusion about necessary and sufficient. It is this hypothetical case that if the United States acted alone, we wouldn't make much progress on climate. That is true. It's also sort of irrelevant because there is virtually no risk of the United States acting alone on climate. The United States is the laggard, not the leader. And if the United States went out there and now committed to an aggressive climate change program, Europe is already there and would come along. Europe's got its own issues. China is moving in that direction and would come along as well. And so I sort of think it's become an excuse, whereas we are not going to have a climate solution if the United States doesn't act. So we should act. The United States has a long history of global leadership. It is often in our interests. It's in the American interest to take a global leadership role. And when we've done that, it's actually ended up working out really well for the United States. There's a nice analogy here to after World War II. If we had sat back and said, look, we're not going to rebuild those other countries. It's their fault. They started the war. And if we're the only ones trying to do good in the world, the world's going to go to hell. And that's not what we did. We helped rebuild Europe and Japan. And that basically created a situation in which the world was safer, it was more prosperous. And by the way, we were the world's most powerful, prosperous country. Well, sure. I mean, it's it would be a fantastic historical what if, if there was no Marshall Plan. Yeah. Right. I mean, that would be yeah. so a I'm fantastic not... historical novel to go with this concept of climate change and what I perceive as some of the problems in terms of how people talk about it. I would also say that there's a real problem in terms of how people phrase the solutions to climate change in terms of often your individual choices, your choice to drive an electric car versus a gas powered car. Those choices, as you're a person who's very familiar with the numbers, really don't, that this is not going to make substantial difference. This is such an enormous problem that will require such enormous coordination between nations and massive restrictions on how we live our lives that are much larger than what type of car you drive. I think a lot of the people in the environmentalist movements are really doing a disservice because they frame the whole thing often as a national problem, which we already discussed. I think we're pretty close to being on the same page there in terms of it needs to be conceptualized larger, but it needs to be also taken out of the realm of liberal individualism, that your individualist choices, no matter how much they make you feel good, not using that plastic straw, that's not really how the problem is going to be solved. Plastic straw is certainly not how the problem is going to be solved. It's not going to require massive restrictions to our daily life by any means, meaning okay. basically making a kind of transition to clean energy shouldn't be that difficult. It requires large changes. So if you go out and buy a Prius, if you decide you're going to take a couple less airline flights this year, if you decide you're not going to use straws, rounding off, that makes absolutely zero difference. I agree with you about that. But if we ended up having a policy that essentially, and we brought other countries along, which is eminently doable, where we said, okay, we're going to get everyone to consume less gas. And the way we're going to do it is we're essentially going to invest research money in building cars that are more fuel efficient. There's a great history of innovation in this country. We can do that. It won't be that hard. That would make a difference. So it's not the issue that, oh my God, we got to go back and like live on the land and eat beef jerky in order to affect climate change. We can do this within the realm of 
modern life. Right? But I mean, there's so but much. But it just can't be you doing it. And it's yeah. got to be society level changes where we essentially use the power of the market to give companies and people, consumers, incentives to use less dirty energy. But do we really have enough time yes. for that kind of structure to come into place? And, I mean, and so I would be very skeptical that you're correct. I'm assuming you're familiar with Jonathan Franzen's recent piece about this, right? This, you know, which is incredible skepticism that any of this is going to work. And I guess I'm going to hedge more towards him, although I think, as I kind of preluded there, that this could be solved with an incredible restructuring of how we live. And that's that people don't want to accept that. But let's... For so the what sake, do you think the future looks like? In this regard? Yeah. I think that we'll continue to fail on almost all fronts because it requires so much coordination that a liberal individualist grand structure, because I'm not just talking about our structure, I'm talking about the global structure, because liberal economy has come to dominate the globe, is incapable of solving this problem, at least incapable of solving this problem on the timeline that we have. So then, do you think the science is wrong about the effects? Or do you think no, I if think we're the science incapable is right that basically about the Miami becomes uninhabitable and we've got large portions of Africa that are uninhabitable. No, I'm saying the science is correct. I'm not challenging any of that. I'm saying it is absolutely, or at least we should assume that it's mostly correct. I mean, I don't think we know exactly. I think there are timelines in terms of when, say, Florida or you know, coastal areas become uninhabitable. Those seem unlikely to me to be correct with precision. No, I agree. Because yep. they could be wildly wrong in the sense that it could be much sooner, yep. or they could be wrong that it could be a little bit later. But they're likely to be more or less correct. What I'm saying is is I disagree that we are capable of solving this with just tweaks of the system. I'm saying the whole system, this is just my viewpoint, and it's somewhat similar to Franzen's, but also substantially different, that it would require a gigantic restructuring of pretty much the way we live. So I guess I would say that I'm more optimistic than you are, that we can actually make a difference. I think the history of human ingenuity is pretty impressive. Like, we sent a man to the moon. I think we can do this. I also think that the stakes are so large in terms of loss of human life, in terms of human conflict, that it is certainly worth trying, right? And that it's like a patient who has a really serious disease. You are not guaranteed of curing the disease, but boy, giving up seems like the wrong answer. Right. But that wouldn't be my argument. My argument would be actually that we need to be even more drastic in the sense that we need to really consider an entirely different way of living that is perhaps less technologically driven. As long as people are thinking, I think we're both agreeing on this, that just putting their phone on low power makes some kind of a difference, that's not going to solve everything. It's going to require at minimum, even if your point of view is correct, a gigantic coordinated effort of how we organize the whole energy system system and how we yeah. embrace it. I don't think there are actually that many people who think putting their phone on low power using straws is the difference. And I I agree with you. There's too much of that sort of virtue signaling. I agree about that. But I think that's a relatively modest part of this problem. I think a much bigger part of the problem is the fact that we have very large polluters who make an enormous amount of money from the status quo and have worked very hard and very successfully to keep the status quo. And if you told me that I could either fix the virtue signaling of the straws 
or fix the notion that these polluting companies insist on the status quo in our political system, I'd fix the second. Yeah, that's fair. But the first is still part of the issue. I think it's more annoying than it is serious. <laughs> that's what I would say. But I guess my, just to finish, to tease it out so that it's somewhat clear, my argument would be more that it's much larger than both of those things. That perhaps we really just can't use anywhere near the power, individually and even collectively, that we'd like. I'm more optimistic, but I understand that view. Let's move on to another topic. I want to point to turnout. You've yeah. written about turnout, which I think is one of the most fascinating blind spots of contemporary politics. I would say even just local politics is a grand blind spot. I mean, why is there not more attention given to how to get people to municipal and local elections, which are abysmal? I mean, they are in some cases lower than 10%, which is not the case for other countries. Now, you've written about, and I don't think this is necessarily your own idea. I think other people have put this forward, but the idea of consolidating elections, the idea that we would try to make more elections happen on the same day. And this is quite unique to American politics. This notion that we have three and four, five sometimes, I mean, I think it's usually only about three or four elections per year. I mean, people are exhausted. I think it's important to start, and I don't mean this all as an excuse, but by saying that elections are designed to produce low turnout, and they produce the turnout that they were designed to, right? So we hold elections on a Tuesday in a cold weather month, I'm fortunate enough to have a job where if I walk off my job for 20 minutes or in some cases two hours to go vote, it's not a problem. But many Americans have jobs where you can't walk off your job for two hours to go vote. And so people have to go pick up their kids after school. We've designed our election system to produce low turnout, and it does produce low turnout. I also think it's important to get people to think about their civic responsibility to vote. I would start with, let's hold elections on a weekend or make it a national holiday. Voter holiday. Yeah, let's stop. I mean, the fact, if you've ever seen the lines that it takes to wade in to vote in some communities, disproportionately African-American communities, the idea that you have to go and wait three hours in line to vote, that really is a legacy of denying certain Americans the right to vote. Waiting three hours to vote is not acceptable in a democracy. So to me, the first way to deal with turnout is the straightforward stuff. Let's make it easy to vote, not hard. I really, really like vote by mail. Oregon's done it. Colorado's done it. It does lift turnout. I understand. How much though? A lot. It's really had a significant effect in those states. And you're the numbers guy, so. Well, unfortunately, there is no one answer because it's not like you've got 20 counties that did it and then 20 counties that didn't and you can randomize it. But if you look at Utah, which came pretty close to having a natural experiment, I can't remember the exact number, but it was noticeable. I think it was maybe high single digit percentage points lifting turnout, not in some local election, an election where there was already real turnout. And so it's a meaningful. But is that high enough? And we're an embarrassment internationally. I mean, if you look at voter turnout rates in most European countries, they're infinitely high. They are. But, you know, one of my favorite lines of Barack Obama's is better is good. Don't underrate better. So does it solve the whole problem? No. But better is good. So if we could lift voter turnout by six percentage points, let's do that. And then let's come back 
back around the table and kind of figure out what else we could do. So that to me is the first thing. I also like the ideas you mentioned, which is try to consolidate elections, don't have civic election one day and national another one, and basically treat our democracy like it's a democracy where we want people to participate. It's fascinating that the idea of consolidating elections, though, would be a very hard problem to solve, I think, because it's not something you could mandate, I don't believe, federally. It would have to mostly be solved locally. You would have to change and say, hey, look, we're not going to have an election this next six months. We're going to push it back another six months. It would entail all kinds of legalities that are way above my head. There are two sets of issues. There are the kind of technocratic issues that are important. Vote by mail, I put in that category. And then there's the fact, and this is much harder to fix. One of our two political parties has decided that it benefits from people not voting. And so in North Carolina, in Georgia, in many other states, you have one of our two political parties, the Republican Party, deliberately trying to make it more difficult for people to vote because they think if we can restrict turnout, particularly among non-white people, we are more likely to win. And it is hard to persuade them otherwise because it's rational. It's nefarious, but it's rational. Well, I think it's hard sometimes, though, for people to understand. I do believe that other countries have voter ID laws. I don't think that that's necessarily like a wild, overtly, we understand that there's a background here. But it's hard for some people on the other side to say, well, wait, why shouldn't somebody have to show an ID? And so I think these other laws that we're talking about, these are major impositions. I mean, especially the fact that we vote on a Tuesday rather than a Sunday or a voter holiday or, you know, the fact that we could maybe vote multiple days. And I'm not exactly sure which countries do that, but I know some do. Right. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we could and probably should be trying to do that I very, very, almost never hear people talking about. And that includes on the left. Voting by mail is basically allowing people to vote multiple days, if you think about it, right? Because you get your ballot, you can mail it anyway. But a lot of people don't use the mail I don't have any problem with voter ID laws, but that's not what's been happening in North Carolina and Georgia. There is a systemic effort to make it difficult for people of color to vote. And if you kind of look at the federal judge rulings on it, I think one of the judges used the word surgical. This was a surgical effort to prevent African-Americans from voting. So it's not simply, hey, you got to have a voter ID, which we could all agree with. It's closing polling places in heavily African-American neighborhoods so that people have to wait much longer in line. It's a long list of stuff like this. Yeah, that's absurd. Well, anything that has to makes anyone have to wait longer in line is something to be avoided. You've written that the right has a problem with violence and you use examples of obviously Trump's encouraging people to rough people up or knock them out in the crowds, which I think are maybe the best examples. But doesn't the left also have a problem with violence, especially in terms of Antifa, which you see almost no coverage in the major mainstream media outlets. And Antifa is a real, especially if you get online and start watching some of their videos, I mean, I don't know if I would go so far as some people to say to call them a terrorist organization, but they're certainly a street gang. And you see almost no condemnation from mainstream left-wing figures, which is maybe at least as much of a problem as not condemning white nationalism on the right. So I think two things. Certainly the left has a violence problem as well. I think there's this whole problem of false equivalence to say, if there's a problem here and there's a problem there, they are necessarily the same scale. And so the two ways in which I would say there are different is the problem of people encouraging violence on the left. These are not elected officials. They are sort of rogue figures. It's not the president of the United States. It's not a member of Congress body slamming a reporter. And so there is a huge mismatch in terms of who's doing the encouraging. And the way we see this manifest itself is you just have to look at the statistics on political hate crimes. And there are hate crimes committed by people on both the right and the left. The most obvious recent example was the horrific shooting of Republican members of Congress by 
by some sort of deranged leftist at a softball practice in Virginia. So it happens on both sides. It is also the case that the overwhelming majority of political violence in this country today is committed by the right wing, not the left wing. I think it's important to engage with those statistics and sort of not say, well, okay, it's about 50-50. Obviously, my politics are left of center. I may not be the most credible person on this, but my friend and fellow podcaster, Ross Douthat, said, I agree with you. There's a problem of political violence on the right, and he's from the right. And I think it's really hard to look at the statistics any other way. And actually, this is a good place for us to end because I think this is a common phenomenon in politics today which is people are very comfortable with 100% to nothing. Like it's all their fault or it's all our fault. And they're very comfortable with 50-50. Everyone's equally at fault. But actually, a lot of American life happens at the 70-30, the 80-20, the 90-10, in which it is true. It is not simply a problem on one side versus the other, but it is more a problem on one side versus the other. In the 1970s, both the right and the left had a problem of worrying too much about overpopulation, that it was going to kill us all. But that was a much bigger problem on the left than it was on the right. The left was freaking out about overpopulation. And today, I would say this idea of using the language of violence and at the very extremes, the vast majority, overwhelming majority, rounding to 100% of conservatives would never commit violence. But if you look at the statistics, the majority of extremist political violence, and not just a narrow majority, a large majority today comes from the right. And I think it's important to acknowledge that without pretending that all of it does. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the yeah, show. Thank you. You've been listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. If you'd like to learn more about our classes or events or the requirements for a major or minor at the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, Go to scetl.asu.edu to learn more. If you have any questions or suggestions for the show, please email us at keepingitcivil at asu.edu. This podcast was produced by Duncan Minch with audio production assistance from Central Sound at Arizona PBS. Thanks for listening.